0: Way to do this.
1: Let me show you a better way.
2: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times. The things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March the third, two thousand seventeen, and this is episode nineteen sixty-two of the Survival Podcast. It is a Friday, but I'm not going to be busting off with the loud Friday, 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 because vocal cords and laryngitis uh, will not let me, and it's probably not responsible for me too. <clears throat> but you guys know the drill. Today is questions for the expert council. i got a good lineup for you today, including some uh, catch-up. So I have two from Darby Simpson and two from Ben Falk to uh, to catch up with those guys and some stuff that slipped between the cracks during the last few weeks. Uh, we have ducks in extreme cold climates from Ben Falk. We have the ins and outs of probiotics from Gary Collins. We have loading stock in the trailers by Darby Simpson. We have establishing trees and preventing deer damage to them by Ben Falk alternatives to the Cornish Cross chicken from Darby Simpson, defending homeschooling and spreading the word about it, Mike and Sue, and keeping your produce cool on the road from Stephen Harris. And a question for me, is freedom possible via preemptive executive pardon and other creative solutions if we to elect a president? Like, let's say we had elected Ron Paul. Could he have said, hey, this this, this, this prosecution of anybody for marijuana is stupid. I'm going to issue a standing pardon for anybody, can, can, uh, you know, uh, accused of any crime regarding marijuana. Not so easy. We'll talk about that and what we can do for true liberty in our own lives as we wrap up today's show. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life. And the advice I gave most business owners every day was, do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made Resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust. Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. Next up, let us take a look at the year that is the episode. We have two today from Alex Shrugged. We have, The time we almost blew up the world in 13 days. And Adolf Eichmann is put to death. (laughs) Good riddance. I'm not going to read that one, so I'll remind you of his quote uh, he said he would gladly leap into his grave with l- l- laughing with satisfaction that he had murdered 5 million Jews. Uh, that little phrase came back to bite him during his trial. Anyway, notable births this year. Chris Christie, Richard Jewell, uh, died in 2007 at 44. Police officer wrongly accused of setting a bomb in Centennial Park during the Olympics. Died of complications from diabetes. Phil Katz. uh, Died age 37 in the year 2000, co-creator of Zip Files. The guy that created Zip Files died drunk in a hotel room. Uh, And in entertainment, Mike Rowe, Jon Stewart, Jim Carrey, Tom Cruise, and Paula Abdul are all born this year. This year in film, we have the music man, the man who shot Liberty Valance. The Manchurian Candidate, that's a really interesting one. Marilyn Monroe dies this year of a drug overdose, probably suicide. Here in music, we have Love Me Do from the Beatles, If I Had a Hammer by Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Return to Sender by the great Elvis Presley. In other news, U.S. Navy SEALs are activated. They're SEAL Team 1 and SEAL Team 2. Rachel Carson's Silent Spring is unleashed. It will stop DDT, and as a consequence, disease will spread. The phrase personal computer is the first used in print by computing pioneer John Mockley. All right, so let's take a look at the time. We almost blew up the world because I have a little personal thing to relate to it. The Cuban mi- m- Missile Crisis begins when a U.S. spy plane spots evidence of Soviet nuclear missile launchers being launched in, or being built in Cuba. 40-yard It's an obvious challenge to the U.S. staging of Chrysler's mid-range ballistic missiles in Turkey and Italy. Chrysler makes the Jupiter missile. Inspiration comes standard. President Kennedy demands that the Soviets stop construction, but after the failed invasion of Cuba last year, Kennedy looks weak. So Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev flips Kennedy the bird, bird in a matter of speaking. If Khrushchev can get Kennedy to back down, then the Soviets can roll over the U.S. and its allies everywhere. But instead of backing down... Kennedy doubles down with a naval blockade of Cuba. Soviet ships challenge the blockade, and the Soviet submarine almost launches its nukes. Khrushchev tries to back down, but Kennedy doesn't get the memo. The crisis continues to spin out of control because Khrushchev can't get through to Kennedy. Finally, Khrushchev announces on the radio that he is pulling the missiles out of Cuba if Kennedy will pull out the U.S. missiles of Turkey. After a little negotiation, the crisis is over, and the world is safe for democracy for now. My take by Alex Shrugged. I know what you're thinking. Why didn't Khrushchev call Kennedy on the red phone? There is no red phone. That's a movie fantasy. But a text-based hotline was installed after the Cuban Missile Crisis. It began with an encrypted teletype system and now an email system between Pentagon and Kremlin. When something happens that might be interpreted as preparations for an attack, a notice is sent through the hotline explaining why it's not an attack. The message is always in text because it's believed that texting is a clearer way to communicate than voice. I hope the word completion feature is turned off, but I remember being scared to death during the crisis, and even though we made it through, I believe that I would never see my 30th birthday. It is difficult for a man to plan for his future when he believes he has no future. That attitude nearly destroyed me, yet here I am today. Frankly, if I had realized I was going to live this long, I would have planned better. I think there's a lot of people that feel that way as they get older in life. Uh, they just didn't expect to make it for some reason or another, and... Uh, <clears throat> or I, I think often sometimes people just thought they would never actually get old. It just seems like some people think old is so far away. You don't need to worry about it because it's not going to catch up to me anytime soon. And tick tock, that clock ticks for us all, doesn't it? <clears throat> as I uh, as I was able to hold my baby granddaughter today, that kind of sinks in. Anyway, um, I, I, I wanted to kind of bring up with you, speaking of people who have gro- grown old and passed away, uh, my grandmother uh, rose on my mom's side. Um, I've talked a little bit about my childhood enough that you guys know that I didn't exactly have a leave it to beaver home. And uh, I've basically been on my own since I was 16. But my grandparents on both sides were really good people. And uh, my my grandmother rose passed away when I was, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I was not yet in high school. Probably uh, 13, 12, 12, I would guess I was. And I remember I had a lot of conversations with her about World War II, um, about all over the world because she traveled with my grandfather who spent 30 years as a, as a warrant officer in the, in the military and military intelligence. Uh, and they went to wonderful places like you know Lebanon uh, and, and, and other places like that uh, in the Cold War years. And I remember her telling me about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I remember what she told me, and I think they were in Lebanon when this was going on and there was one particular um, day where this thing really reached a peak over this 13 day period. I don't know if it was last day, second last, I don't know what it was, but people really came to the conclusion that not only was this likely to happen, but it was probably going to happen like now. And um, her and my grandfather had this you know rental house that the military had for them in Lebanon And they went up on the roof with a bottle of wine. I figured they'd just watch it happen because there wasn't anything they could do about it anyway. So why not just accept it? And keep in mind, my grandfather was in military intelligence and and fairly high up, had come all the way through World War II by now. Um, So had a little bit of, you know, behind the scenes information uh, going on at this point. Also had, uh, by this point, uh, four children. And, uh, had it to been tough. Had it to been tough coming through World War II, uh, believing that you had literally won the war that would end all wars, seeing what happened happen in Korea, and then this goes on, and then this happens. That you almost go to the brink of, of complete annihilation of the planet. Just something to think about, guys. Uh, when we hear leaders today crambling, you know, for we should be more aggressive with Russia. Um, you know, the other uh, nuclear superpower other than us and China. I think the three nations that are the nuclear superpower should be doing everything they can at all times to de-escalate the situation between each other, certainly not to inflame it. I kind of look at it the same way I do when you carry a gun. I have grown older and wiser, and I now always try to de-escalate situations. But when I maybe was a little more quick to pop you in the face, Um if you're in my face and there's potential for a conflict, I have an obligation morally to de-escalate it. But if I'm carrying a gun, I believe my obligation to de-escalate goes higher because I have the ability to take your life. Therefore, if I bait you into a, a fight and I end up on the losing end of the situation and I take your life, it never had to happen. I, I bear additional responsibility. I think the greater your capability to take life, the greater your responsibility to de-escalate from violence. While we should all be doing it at all times, those with great power have a a greater uh, requirement, in my view, if they are to be moral and upright. All right, folks, let me remind you that the main way that you can support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast is by joining the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short, and you hear me talk all the time about the over 60 discounts that you get, but let me tell you some of the other things you get. How about nine free ebooks, including planting trees the low cost easy way, how to build top bar beehives, basics of sprouting, Building an EPAC kit, getting your household in order, building a traditional clay oven, building aquaponic systems, secrets of ballistic strikings, and Squanto's Garden—all of those are free ebooks that you get only as an MSB member. You can also download MP4 versions of many of our YouTube videos. You get zip files of every episode of TSP ever produced, and how about videos of the workshops here at Nine Mile Farm that we do in the spring and the fall? All of that and more available as an MSB member. You can sign up for as little as 5 bucks a month to give it a shot or $50 a year. That comes out to 18 cents 3 an episode. And with that, let's go ahead and get into our first question. We have a question for Ben Falk on dealing with ducks and specifically their water requirements in extreme cold climates. And I definitely kick this one to Ben because I got a live duck experience. Uh, my extreme cold climate experience was getting the hell out of Pennsylvania and moving to Texas. So, Ben, take it away.
0: Hello, Ben Falk here with Whole Systems Design in central Vermont um, with answers or at least some tips about questions related to cold climate, homesteading, um, building systems, and the process of design and construction, earthworks, site selection, site design as well. Um, question uh, from Rebecca about what's the best way to design a system <clears throat> to keep a pond from freezing over it's a good question I wonder the same thing often I'd like to leave an area open for my ducks I'm just north of you near the Vermont Canadian border I'm off grid so I'm looking for a solution that uses little or no power good call if this is impossible then how do you best see the needs of your ducks in a harsh winter uh, see to the needs of the ducks in a harsh winter So if you're not, you know, using electricity, which would be good to not do always, if possible, passive systems are where it's at, not active systems, you can, in an ideal world, funnel down a creek into a pond, or what we've done is that we have a spring that runs in the winter into our pond, and it used to just go into the pond for a few years, you know, in the Three, half inch tubing and right into the water and the, the, the exit was underwater essentially under the ice in the winter well that wasn't helping us keep the, the pond open or giving us any aeration benefit so we just propped it up on a rock and ran it over a cool concave stone that I found and now we've created a waterfall still gravity feed that keeps the, the a hole open but a very small one and same where you are you're just as cold if not colder so even if you have a nice waterfall unless it's a real fire hose of a you know it's many gallons a minute, it's only going to keep a pretty small amount of ice open uh, or water open, and the ducks will go in there, they'll like it, but they're not going to really expand it with their own energy and kind of disturbance as the ice really gets deeper. Um, They'll just basically have a tiny little hole for, for water access. So what we've found is just don't deal with it. We'll break open the ice you know, later in the year when, when things are mild, milding out or, or there's a real thaw. We'll bust open the ice a bit with a sledgehammer to give them bigger access. But it's really, there's not finding much food in there in the winter because it's such a limited amount of space anyway. Even if we open it up to, let's say, 10 by 10, that's still too limited to find much food. So it's really just for them bathing, which they need to do. And that can be achieved with a two by two foot hole, so the size is not really doesn 't really matter. Um, we generally don 't focus on that, therefore, and we have a frost free hydrant in the barn and we just fill up one bucket of water a day and dump it in a sled, and that 's their bathing water and so many people need think they need um, you know, a pond for ducks, like we've got to build a, a pond to, to have ducks and geese. No, you don't need a pond. They just need to be able to bathe. So that's as simple as a five-gallon bucket filled not even all the way and dump it into a sled once a day. And that's it. And they can wash off and be happy. Um, and generally, ducks are a lot easier than chickens, I think, um, with that as their primary need. Um, so that'd be my main advice, um, unless you can get a Creek to really come in there and it'd have to be a real tumbling Creek for it to keep the water open to any extent, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't focus on keeping the water open completely. If you can just fill a sled for them. Good luck. Thanks.
2: Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with everything that Ben said. And again, he's far more equipped to talk about dealing with extreme cold than I am. Um, man, I love new England. I don't love a government in New England, except New Hampshire's pretty good with free state people. Uh, but I love the geography of it, like from, oh, April until, like, Thanksgiving. And then, guys, I just don't know how you live there from the rest of that period. December, January, February, March in that place. Temperatures, you know, 20 degrees below zero or more. I, I don't get it. But uh, God bless you for it, because it is beautiful country. Next question I have is for Gary Collins on probiotics. Gary, take it away.
3: Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins of primalpowermethod.com, answering all your health, wellness, weight loss, primal lifestyle, off the grid, and life simplification questions. And uh, also make sure my new book is out, Going Off the Grid. It's available on my website and also available on Amazon and in Kindle format. Now with today's question, I get this one quite a bit about uh, what are the benefits of taking a probiotic supplement. And to understand that, Go into a little bit of gut flora or gut bacteria. Most of our gut bacteria reside in our colon and it's our 85% of our immune system is actually uh, regulated and activated by our gut bacteria. So I won't get into that. That's a very long-winded. It could give, take way too long. But uh, it's also our colon is considered our second stomach because that gut bacteria also does a lot of digestion, produces a lot of uh B vitamins, serotonin. So it's an it, gut bacteria is very, very important. Matter of fact, we are basically ninety-nine percent uh bacteria. Um we're we're a ten to one far as cells, I should have rephrased that. We are ten to one bacteria to cells in our body. That's how much bacteria we have. We humans are actually living bacteria. So we're always using hand sanitizer and and making sure we don't get anything. Actually, that actually hurts us instead of helps us sometimes because some of that good bacteria absorbs through your skin and finds its way into your digestive tract, which is beneficial. Well, there's two types of bacteria. There's beneficial bacteria and there's also the adverse or negative bacteria. And they work in balance. It's basically an 85 15% ratio. So, or 80-20, it's right around there. And what you do, the reason you have this is you don't want the good bacteria to overwhelm your system just as you don't want the bad bacteria. So they work in balance through receptor sites and it keeps it on track. Well, the problem today is with all the sugar, all the prescription drugs we take, all the artificial, uh, you know, synthetic foods, and f- inflammatory foods that we do, and then lack of sleep, too much caffeine. Well, what this does is this negatively affects our gut bacteria and causes a negative ratio to where you have more bad bacteria than good bacteria, which causes a whole host of autoimmune issues, primarily through uh, allergies, as far as seasonal allergies and food allergies. I won't get into that either. It's very long-winded. I've actually written on my blog, uh, just go look up gut flora, gut bacteria, or probiotics, and the the article should come up. It's pretty in-depth. Um, but the benefits of taking a daily probiotic is, again, because most people today have an imbalance of gut good and bad bacteria. So they have too much bad, not enough good. What's happened, though, with be careful with what's happened today in the supplement market is they're creating these mega doses of probiotics. And I do not recommend that. I actually sell a maintenance dose, which is very much lower than what is out there today. And I've found through not only myself, but working with clients, a small maintenance dose is far more effective than taking mega doses of probiotics because that can cause, a, like I said, a negative reaction. And you're actually usually just wasting your money because your body can't assimilate that much probiotic or that much good bacteria. So that's a, the simple answer to why it would benefit you to take a probiotic, especially if you're trying to lose weight. Usually people who are overweight tend to have a uh, imbalance of bad bacteria to good bacteria, so it's always a good idea. And I know that my probiotic is my second best-selling product right behind turmeric, So I know people have gotten good results from it. I know I have. That's why I created it. That's why I take it. So I hope that helps. And remember, all you MSB members, you get 10% off your entire order by using the coupon code in the membership site of TSP uh, for my website, primalpowermethod.com.
2: Yeah, I've always had a big problem with people that you call germaphobes that are completely obsessed with everything being... you know, spotlessly clean, because the reality is you're not going to get rid of all the bacteria that are there anyway. And two, if you needed to, you'd be dead. Um, That's why people with poor immune systems can just die if they're not, like, kept in a clean room. And uh, most of the bacteria that we're exposed to is beneficial to us. The majority of it is, or we have very good defenses against us. It's only when we are weakened or the bacteria is introduced in some way that it shouldn't be. Uh, that we uh, end up with a problem. For instance, there's there's some bacteria that, that, that live in some of our systems that really need to stay isolated to that and, and not in others. If, if you want to think about it this way, for instance, your digestive system is really not inside you. I, I know you're like, what the hell is he talking about? Your digestive system is basically an internal skin that is a tunnel through you. And you might not think that's important. You might think, Jack, you're, you're you're technically right, but who gives a damn? Well, because a lot of things in your back, your, your your digestive system that belong in your digestive system, don't belong outside of your digestive system, inside of you and the rest of you. That's why things like a, a gunshot wound to the intestines can be so dangerous, even if you don't hemorrhage out, even if you get help right away, you could have very serious uh, uh, concerns with infection. So. We are bacterial creatures, as as Gary uh, put it, but we need certain bacteria in certain places and not in other places. And that kind of drives home how much bacteria we have inside of us to think that putting a hole in your intestine and leaking some of the intestinal contents into the rest of your body could just be bad for obvious reasons, but that it could actually lead to serious infections from bacteria that are completely benign and harmless and many times even beneficial in the intestines in the correct environment. Makes you think about taking better care of all your bodily systems. Just, just going throw that in there. Next up, I have a question for Darby Simpson on loading livestock. Darby, take it away.
4: Hello again, everyone. This is Darby Simpson from DarbySimpson.com and the Grass Fed Life Podcast. This week, I've got a question from Clinton in Ohio about how to successfully haul livestock to the butcher. Uh, He was wanting some tips and tricks to make things easier, to um, make it less stressful on the animals when you're transporting them and unloading them, and he also had some questions about how to select a a butchering facility. Um, Clinton uh, had mentioned in his message, uh, he he had heard me talk uh, back a few years ago uh, about the fact that I never hauled just one animal into the, the butcher, and that is absolutely the case. Uh, years ago, when our operation was smaller, I, I might only, you know, have one cow that was scheduled to be butchered, um, and I would always try and load up at least one other cow, and and haul both of them down to the butchering facility. And the reason for that is just to, uh, you know, help the, the guy that's about to get butchered not be so nervous. Um, you know, it's already stressful. You're you're putting them into a livestock trailer. You're hauling them away from the home uh that they're used to and uh their you know uh familiar surroundings and smells and and their environment and everything and if they if they get loaded into a trailer and hauled off by themselves it really just expounds all of those other things and it it can have some pretty negative impact uh on the animal Um, in particular, their adrenal glands open up, and if, if you're, uh, you know, getting them butchered the same day you're hauling them in, that can have a really negative effect on the quality of the meat that you're gonna get back from the butcher. Uh, Clinton was also wanting to know, like, is it kind of par for the course, uh, you know, for a butchering facility to, to feel a little bit like a, a medieval dungeon? You know, with with you know concrete and and bars everywhere, and 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 the short answer on that, Clinton, is yeah, that that's pretty typical. I mean, it it needs to be clean, it needs to be well kept, it needs to be in in good repair, obviously, but you know, concrete and you know just a, a handful of light bulbs and and uh, metal cages everywhere is is pretty well par for the course. So as long as you're happy with the uh, the butcher uh, that you're working with you know um there's there's really no reason to switch just because it's kind of you know dark and dank and, and things of that nature uh but back to the the main question at hand um I, I always do encourage people to to take more than one animal now, in this case, uh Clinton only had one ram that he was hauling off to get butchered, and when he got down there, the ram was so frightened uh that it didn't want to move it was frozen, he couldn't get it to unload. And Clinton had mentioned in his message that, you know, this ram wasn't super familiar with him because he didn't really work with it a whole lot. That that certainly plays a role in that. Um, but the main thing is, you know, he, he was alone, and he was scared, and, and he, he froze. So, yeah, I think it's always best to take more than one animal. Um, my suggestion is that you not unload any animals that are not getting butchered, if you can keep from it, just because – you do run the risk of them walking around and picking up some disease from another farm, and then you you bring that back to your farm, so I always try and keep any animals that that are uh, you know that are lucky enough to make the trip back home. I try and keep them on the livestock trailer and just unload you know whatever animal it is uh, that's that 's getting butchered now. Our operation has gotten to the point now where it 's um, pr- pretty well unheard of that we only take in one animal, even with our cattle. I mean, the minimum that I'm hauling in now is like, you know, two or two or three head at a time. And with pigs, you know, it, it's a, a minimum of four, and it, it'll be as many as 12. So there's always a number of them uh, together uh, in, in the trailer. So that does kind of help them keep that herd instinct, um, and it keeps them from getting wound up and, and upset and things of that nature. Keeps their adrenal glands from opening. Uh, the other thing I would tell you is, like, you always want to try and haul them in the day before they're going to get butchered. I know that can be difficult, but you you put a lot of time and effort into this animal. The last thing you want to do is, you know, haul it in there the morning it's it's you know, <laughs> going to be slaughtered and and unload it uh, and get it all worked up uh, before that takes place. And you know those again those adrenal glands open and it's. You know, frothing out the mouth and upset and man, that's just, that's, that's just a, a terrible way to, you know, potentially ruin a lot of hard work that you've put into raising some food for your family. So, um, those are really, you know, the, the big things. Um, and, and be sure and work with the animal, um, as much as you can. I know that that's not always easy, uh, particularly when you get a f- full-time job, you know, off-farm or off your homestead. But try to have them familiar with you, and if at all possible, you know, run them through a livestock trailer loading scenario in advance. You know, put a treat in there for them. If you've got some mineral uh, or some molasses or something like that, if there's a little treat you're giving them. Um, you know, if you're not feeding them grain, get, give them something else. If you are graining them, uh, well, I don't recommend that for ruminants start feeding a little bit into a trailer a few days before you load them up just so they get used to it and they're just not as worked up. Um, and then, like I said, always try and take a buddy or or make sure and schedule more than one animal at a time. Those are the big tips and tricks I have for you. Clinton, hopefully it goes better for you next time around and uh, you don't have as many problems when you get down there. Uh, and... I mentioned the Grassfed Life podcast um, at the beginning of this. Diego and I actually just did an episode here recently about how to select a butcher, and there's a number of things to consider. Um, and it certainly is more complex if you're you're doing this for profit. And Clinton, I know you are not; that you're doing it more of a homestead scale. But a lot of those uh, you know things still apply. A lot, a lot of the things to look for, questions to ask. Things of that nature, those all apply, whether it's you know for profit or if it's for your homestead and your family. So I would encourage you to go out and listen to that episode and see if you can't glean some additional information from it. Um, everybody else, hey, check out my website. There's a lot of free blog articles out there on all kinds of uh, you know uh, how-to information on raising livestock like this for profit, uh, marketing, all kinds of different things. Um, head on out. Check out the Grassfed Life podcast, guys. There's almost 50 episodes out there already. Uh, you can find that in iTunes, or you can head over to PermacultureVoices.com and find it there as well. And for anyone who is interested, I do offer one-on-one consulting. You can find more information about that at DarbySimpson.com. If you're a TSP MSB member, be certain and check out your MSB page before you sign up for a consult. You do get a nice little discount there, thanks to Uncle Jack. As always, everyone, thanks for sending the questions in. Keep them coming. Everyone have a great weekend, and take care. Bye-bye.
2: So I've got another one here for uh, Ben Falk, and this one is establishing trees, in this case a a hedge line, uh, without deer eating all of your new planted trees to the ground, because, well, deer will do that. Uh, Ben, take it away.
0: Hi there. It's Ben Falk of Whole Systems Design. Question about... Uh, the southern, the home on the southern coast of Oregon, um, we're in the process of buying a 5.5 acre piece of land on the southern coast of Oregon, hoping to create a living fence composed primarily of species of locusts mixed with hazelnuts, fruit trees, and a variety of other useful trees and shrubs. At its longest, our living fence will be just over 500 feet long. Our question is, how do we go about protecting our baby trees from deer and elk while they're being established without having to build a fence to protect them? I'm happy to have them nibble on the outside of the living hedge once it's established, but they can be very destructive of small trees and shrubs here. Indeed. Um, So, well, without building a fence... You have things like dogs, you know, the presence of an animal to keep those animals away. That's obviously problematic at night or, you know, other times when maybe the dog can't be there. With 500 feet, that is something a dog could patrol, let's say, but then you have to have a dog out there basically all the time. Um, We have had good success with spraying deer repellent on plants. Deer stopper is one I recommend, or you can make your own. Um... Anything that stinks and has cayenne pepper, human urine. I mean, pee in a bucket in the winter when the pressure's high. Usually they're not eating trees uh, in many places during the growing season, although it might be different there. For us, it's a winter challenge. Uh, urinate in a bucket, use that. Um, the more eat meat you eat, apparently, the more it works Um putrescent eggs, even just straight up regular eggs. I've heard work, but they can clog your sprayer. Buy a backpack sprayer, buy a good one. Um, it'll save you money in the long run. Solo is okay, but I would get a really high quality one. I've, I've bought a few over the years and I would, I would spring for like a $200 metal backpack sprayer. We can replace all the parts on it. And then, um, at least $200, get a really good one. And then, um, you have to spray the plants, which is quick. Five hundred feet would take like a slow walking pace, basically, very slow, and you can spray it once every two to four weeks, depending on how much it's raining, which would be probably a lot where you are in the winter. Um it if you use an oil-based mixture, it can stay on there a while. This has worked pretty well for us. It's worked well for other people. It's very inexpensive, but it takes vigilance. You know, you have to replace infrastructure with vigilance usually or you can build a fence and then not have to do that. I would recommend, though, building a fence in this situation. You said without building a fence, but if you just put up two fiber, uh, two, two um, lines of polywire on fiber posts, which you can get for about two bucks a pop, and then they have many other uses, um, get an energizer, put three to six thousand volts through it, bait it. There's a lot of info on this online about it. We use aluminum foil and peanut butter. You will train the herd off of that hedge in our experience. That's probably going to be the least amount of work, um, and expense. Um, but you could choose to do the, uh, spraying if you really don't want to build a fence, which is what you said you don't want to do. So good luck. Um, it's a challenge, but it's a challenge you got to meet. And, uh, sometimes you only have like two to three years needed to deal with this before you're in the clear and then they nibble the hedge, but they're not really causing a problem. They're just nibbling it up a bit. Um, good luck.
2: I'm going to go all in on agreeing with Ben on, I, I don't really even consider what you would be putting in a fence. It is so much easier and quicker than a fence. You get the little step-ins with the little loops. You run your, uh, your electro tape and you hook up your charger, and it's problem solved. And I'm going to explain the comment about baiting the deer. Because baiting deer is illegal. Well, first of all, in some states, like Texas, no, it's not. Uh, and not this way. This is totally legal because it doesn't kill them, but it does give them a clue about not bothering your stuff anymore. What you do is you take your your electric uh, line uh, or your electric tape, either one doesn't matter, and you take a piece of aluminum foil. And you fold it in half so that it's attached like a little uh, flag attached to your electric stuff. Turn it off first, by the way. And then you take peanut butter and you smear peanut butter on the aluminum foil. You do about, you know, if you had a, a 500-foot row, I would suggest doing that uh, initially about once every 20 feet. And not being the white deer, maybe once every 50 feet. Because the white deer smell, they're going to find the peanut butter. And what the little deer does is he comes up and he sniffs it and mmm, peanut butter. That smells good. And he sticks his little deer tongue out. And I think your mental computer can do the rest of the equation. I had deer problems with my garden in Arkansas. I didn't do two lines or whatever. I did one line of electric line around the property, grounded it, ran an extension cord out there, plugged it in. And uh, I got to see the first deer. This deer went up on its back feet like a horse. It landed on its back. It flipped over and it ran away. And I, if you've ever been popped by an electric fence, you can imagine why. Once we had this in place for a while, we were able to shut it off and just the, they, they wouldn't do it again. They never tested it to find out if it worked again. And you wouldn't either. If you went somewhere and looked at something and touched it and it hurt like a bastard. Well, you just say, I'm not touching that ever again. And I think there's two kinds of people in this world when it comes to electric fences: People that have been popped by one, people that haven't yet been popped by one. People that have been have, I think, less overall fear because they know you're not going to sit there and fry with your brains going to goo out of your ears and your hair standing on edge. They know it just hurts, but they know it really effing hurts. So while they have less fear, they have greater respect. When they're doing things like opening a gate and taking off a, a you know, an insulated handle or something like that, you know, and there's there's two kinds of people in this world. And once you've been popped, you'll never touch one to see if it's on again, you know, unless your person's just a masochist. So I agree completely with Ben on this one. It will cost you less money. It will also take you a lot less effort um, over time than spraying this thing every couple weeks, which will have limited effect. That's just my opinion. Next up, I have a question for Darby Simpson on uh, options for pastured poultry other than the Cornish Cross.
4: Hello, once again, everybody. This is Darby Simpson from DarbySimpson.com and the Grass-Fed Life podcast. This week, I have a question from Charles, who has been raising uh, broilers for his own personal consumption for the last few years. But he's been using a Freedom Ranger type of bird from Murray McMurray. And Charles' main question uh, revolves around wanting to know if there is a chicken that is a good alternative somewhere between the Freedom Ranger-type bird and the Jumbo Cornish Cross. Um, Charles, um, I'm right there with you, man. I'm, I'm not a fan of the Jumbo Cornish Cross that finishes out in, you know, six and a half, seven weeks, uh, even doing that on pasture, Um in a in a production model like we have here on our farm. Um, but like you mentioned in your email, these Freedom Ranger birds, like they take up to you know 12 weeks, in some cases 14 weeks, to uh to get a finished bird. Um and, and there are a lot of advantages to those, but if you know time is an issue, I, I do think there's a really good alternative. Um, you had mentioned in your email um that you, you'd heard me talk about a bird I was using a few years ago Uh, from a a hatchery in Alabama called Heritage White, and we did use a a bird from a hatchery down there. It's S&G poultry, and I really did like the Heritage White quite a bit. Um, I I felt like it was a pretty good alternative. It did take a little bit longer. You're looking at about eight and a half to nine weeks. Um, It looks like a Cornish cross chicken. It acts a lot like a Cornish cross chicken, but, man, um, they performed a lot better on pasture, and the the death rate was a lot less than the Jumbo Cornish Cross. Unfortunately, we're no longer working with that hatchery. We were having major issues getting birds shipped to us from that hatchery, or I should say, shipped alive. We were evidently running into some issues with what I understand to be a kind of a known problem uh, in in the Memphis, Tennessee area. Uh, that has been referred to as a death trap by more than one hatchery if, if birds go through that area of the country for whatever reason. So, unfortunately, we could no longer continue to work with S&G poultry. But I have a great alternative for you. Um, I've been using a different hatchery now for the last year and a half, um, a referral from my good friend Chris Jordan in Illinois. He turned me on to a, a small family-owned hatchery called Schlecht Hatchery, and that's spelled S-C-H. L-E-C-H-T. You can find them at Schlechtattree.com. They're in eastern Iowa. And they have uh, what is referred to as a Cornish cross. But my basic understanding is that this particular bird has not been doctored with in a couple of decades. Uh, Etta and the gang over there have got a um, an older strain of Cornish cross. Uh, while it grows faster... Then something like the the Freedom Ranger that you're used to, it doesn't grow anywhere near as fast as the Jumbo Cornish Cross that you're going to get from a hatchery like Murray McMurray or any one of the other hatcheries out there. Um, we did a test batch of those in the fall of 2015, really liked them, uh, ran them all summer in 2016, and I feel like I finally got a good handle on them by the end of 2016. It did take me about five batches to really get them dialed in. Um, But i tell you what, man, we we really like them. They are uh, as big of an improvement over the S&G birds as the S&G birds were over the traditional Jumbo Cornish Cross. Um, I'm only putting about eight, eight and a half weeks in these birds, but the leg problems and heart attacks and all those issues are even lower. Than what I was finding with S and G, so uh, we're really happy with these, and I, I do feel like they're a pretty good middle ground. Um, you know, it, it'd be nice if someone like myself, uh, you know, could get the dollars acquired from the consumer uh, to raise something like a, a Freedom Ranger. But you know what? The free market, uh, at least in my region, is just not there yet. So we're left using. Uh, this alternative bird. But I, I think it's, you know, I, I'm really happy with it. I, I think it's a great alternative. And uh, I would really encourage you to, to check them out. Terrific customer service. When you call over there, you talk to, you know, one of the owners. Um, they, they personally call you and let you know when your birds ship out, uh, when to expect them. I mean, just a really, really great family-owned business that I just cannot recommend highly enough. And they do more than uh just you know fast growing meat birds. I mean they, they've got laying hens, they've got ducks, they've got turkeys and geese, uh they, they've got all kinds of stuff. So get on over to Schlecthatry, check them out, and uh hopefully it goes well for you this year. One uh one note, uh and you'll want to talk with someone over there about this, uh they do require a slightly higher protein feed than what you would traditionally give a, a Cornish cross. Typically with a Cornish cross, you're looking at a 21% starter, and then, you know, like a 19 or an 18% out on pasture. And these birds do need a little bit higher protein. We're kind of looking at maybe like a 23% starter, 24% starter, and then about 20% out on pasture. So uh, talk with someone over there. Get that dialed in. You, you may have to get some uh, feed custom mixed, or if you're buying bagged feed at a farm store, you might need to uh, purchase some additional fish meal or something like that to mix in and and boost the the protein up to the appropriate level. But aside from that, easy handling birds uh, and, you know, really, really happy with them. Can't wait to get them dialed in further this year and get even more profitable with them. So anyway, Charles, hey, man, I hope that helps you out. Hope it answers your question. If you have any further questions, feel free to email me directly uh, you, can, you can do that by shooting an email to info at Simpson Family Farm. Uh, for everyone else out there, feel free to check out my website at DarbySimpson.com. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, um, there are all kinds of free articles out there that you can read about the production and marketing of pasture poultry, pork, and grass-fed beef. If you're really into this kind of thing, head on over to iTunes uh, or PermacultureVoices.com and check out the Grass-Fed Life podcast. We are actually coming up on episode number 50. Believe it or not, there are uh, over 50 hours of podcasts out there on for-profit farming that talks about everything we're doing here on our farm, how we built our business from scratch, uh, how our farm is slowly evolving and, and changing. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of great information out there. Even if you're just homesteading, wanting to raise stuff for yourself, there's still a lot of great information that will save you a lot of heartache and trouble. So get on out there. Check that out. As always, everyone, have a wonderful weekend and keep those questions coming. Thanks a lot and take care.
2: Good stuff from Darby. I have to say, having, uh, run, uh, one season, uh, I think it was, we ordered 50, but they sent us like 60 of the Freedom Rangers. Um, great birds from a, uh, survivability standpoint and from a, a working standpoint. Wasn't really in love with the meat product at all from them. Um, the, the the breast meat was almost as dark as a regular chicken's dark meat. And that doesn't necessarily bother me, but the dark meat was almost black. And they had huge bones. And the way they were built, you if you put one of those like thighs in a slow cooker and cooked it for like three hours until it it's falling apart, it still looked bloody inside. Um, if you're a homesteader and you're raising birds, I guess it's not really a problem because chicken's chicken in the end. But as a marketability thing, I just, <clears throat> I never found them to be marketable. So these other birds that Darby recommends, if you're in the idea that you might someday at least sell some of your birds, might be really worth checking out. Uh, next up, I have a question for Mike and Sue Laprese, uh on homeschooling, specifically about spreading the word and defending the freedom uh, to homeschool uh, by spreading the word. Mike and Sue, take it away.
1: This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you love to live for the expert council. Hey Jack, before I get to today's questions, I gotta tell you, you know, we collect about 30,000 gallons of water here on our property. Um, but today we've been saving up our money and we got a Berkey crown filter. So we've got a big family, so we needed the jumbo, the crown, but, um, We get to check off the box that we've completed our water storage and our water filtration system. So in terms of our preps, that box can be completely checked off. So thanks so much. We're excited about today's question because it goes right to the heart of the reasons that we homeschool. Freedom. Today's question is from Debbie, and Debbie writes, Sometimes I feel like we are under attack from what Jack calls the programming of minds, in other words, the mainstream media. The reality is homeschool children, by the numbers, do better than those kids in government schools. I believe Jack said Dallas has less than a 50% graduation rate in part of its district. There are areas that are worse than that, too. What do you think we should be doing as homeschool families to spread the word about our successes and be proactive in defending what we do? Do you think that we should be more vocal or perhaps less so?
5: Well... I used to think, oh, my gosh, they're attacking my homeschooling, my homeschool. But, you know, it's not just about my little microcosm of life. You have to kind of pull back and think, no, there's an attack on freedom, the freedom of everybody. And so if you look at the history of government school, just as one example of losing our freedom is, hey, there's a government school For this little community. And you can come if you want. You don't have to. And then, well, we really need you to show up. And then it's mandatory. And then it's mandatory for five-year-olds. And now it's mandatory for four-year-olds. And in some areas, they really want the three-year-olds there. And if you don't have breakfast at home, then you can get there early for breakfast and you can get a free lunch and you can stay later in the afternoon if your parents can't come and get you. And so they have just sucked up all of your family time and taken responsibility for your children. But in the process, they've robbed you of your freedom. And if you want to really learn about the history of government schools, there's a great book called The Underground History of American Education by John Taylor Gatto. It is G-A-T-T-O. It's um, about a $90 book, and I had one that I lent to a friend, and her house burnt down with my book. And, um, but you can also watch a bunch of his stuff on YouTube for free if you don't want to spend $90 on this awesome book. It's huge, by the way, so it's worth the $90. And it's Gatto, G-A-T-T-O.
1: So I want to talk a little bit about what Jack talks about, perception bias. I can't see it because it requires me changing. And so we've got friends who would say that government schools aren't good. They would admit to that, but they would say, but not my government school. And they would admit that there are bad teachers out there, but not my kids' teachers. So that's just a nature of, of perception bias. And the attacks that we, that we see should be expected. It's, it's about money, it's about dollars. Schools lose funding when they lose children. So the fewer children that go to school, the less funding they get. And so the people in those in that society, the people in those schools are going to be fighting to keep the money that they've been used to getting. But if we're really going to invest in the future, we need children who understand freedom. Debbie, we believe we should be more vocal. That's one of the reasons we are glad to be part of the expert council.
5: So don't hide. In our early years of homeschooling, there was a lot of negative vibes going on. when we would go out into the community, even the grocery store. All the old people are like, what do you mean you homeschool? Why aren't your children in school? What's wrong with your school? You know, just this constant negative. But now when we go out, it's like, wow, that's great. And a lot of times I get, wow, that's great. But I couldn't do that. But as you know, if you're homeschooling, when you see things in real life, it changes your perception. So was what we would like to encourage the homeschoolers listening to do is remember that it's not about a level. You're not sharing that, well, my child is brilliant and they're on level. They're above level. But it's really about a lifestyle that I think TSP listeners are looking for. So think about this. You want a lifestyle of freedom, you want to spend time how you want to spend it. You want to use your energy how you want to spend it. And you want to pursue interests that you are interested in. And really, so do your children. Your children probably don't want to sit on the bus and sit in school. They want to spend their time doing things that they love, that they enjoy, just running in the yard, running through a forest. That's what the grown-ups are looking for is freedom and And I tell you, kids want freedom too. So you start them young and you teach them freedom. You don't lecture them on freedom. You give them freedom. And if you give children freedom, that's how you're going to get your freedom when you're older. Because you'll have people that know what it feels like. Or you can choose to warehouse these children in government schools, get them 70 vaccines, have them on ADHD medication, have an increasing obesity rate, and one of the newest things they've realized is happening from kids sitting on the bus and sitting in school and sitting on the bus and you sitting in the line at school is there's a lot of joint disorders happening in very young children.
1: Debbie, as you know, homeschooling is growing, and people are getting their information from a variety of sources and discounting the mainstream media. So homeschoolers need to be more vocal with our actions. We've been involved in our community, at church, scouts, our kids did swim team for years, and we post our adventures on Facebook and our kids actually doing things.
5: Unlike a friend who posted of their charter school hands-on learning little thing that they were doing, and it was funny because the only person in these pictures that was actually hands-on was a teacher. So more and more people are becoming dissatisfied with the results of government schools. So let's share our successes with our communities and change their paradigm.
1: Debbie, we'll address the three articles you referenced next time. And Jack, thanks again for all you do for our community. This has been Michael and Sue Lapreze with HaloBySue.com reminding you that in order to have a future that's free, we need to teach freedom to our children.
2: Um, here's what I would add to that from a, a standpoint of, of comparing the two options, uh, uh, some some form of homeschooling, unschooling, et cetera, versus government schools. When I was at Liberty Forum, I think the second time that I went, I was in a uh, a bar there at the hotel. That we When we weren't in sessions, that was pretty much where we were, not just to drink, because it was just convenient for me to be able to talk to people. And when I go to things like that, uh, if you've been to one, you know, I don't. Do what a lot of other speakers do. I don't go do my thing and then maybe have a little special thing for my special people and then, you know, disappear and go eat the green M&Ms that they were counted out into a bowl for me in my room. I sit there with everybody and anybody that wants to talk to me. So we're having all these conversations and we're talking about liberty and freedom and stuff like that. And these, uh, two guys that were there on business, uh, are sitting like at a booth rate right where they can hear what's going on with this giant gaggle of maniacs that are everything from actual, you know, State House representatives in suits and ties to like people with piercings you can see through and everybody's getting along and I think that kind of like what the hell kind of group is that that's that's what the, the you know that that's what the Free State Project is like but we're talking and, and the subject of schools came up and I was pretty anti public education at the time but nowhere near as anti as I am now and a guy said to me you know he said one of the reasons we moved here. Uh, from some other place is because they have better schools here. And I said, well, what are they better at? And you can see he was very uncomfortable because he wasn't quite sure how to answer the question. Because what do you say that? Oh, they have better teachers. Well, what are they better at? And that's what he, had, he said next. Well, their teachers are better. Well, what are they better at? Teaching. Exactly how are they better at? What are they better at teaching? Well, they have better test scores. Well, does that mean that they're actually better for your kid? And, and it turned out that what this guy was most concerned about, he was an upwardly mobile, successful person. He was concerned about his children getting into the best college possible so they could follow in his footsteps, regardless of whether or not that was what was right for them. So when I look at homeschool versus um, government school, this is what I, I, I realized, what it's, what it's better at. It's better at developing the potential of the student, no matter what that potential is. Because some people do not have the potential to be the guy like this guy who's probably kind of an executive level vice president of sales traveling around. and do, They don't have that potential, nor they have that desire. Some people do not have the potential to be a high-level computer programmer. Some people do not have the potential to be a doctor. Some people do not have the potential to be a lawyer. It's just not in them. It's just not who they are. What we all have is the potential for greatness. And that greatness requires that we follow the path that actually ends up where that greatness is. And if I'm walking your path, and your path is to your own greatness, which is conventional academic learning in a conventional setting, going to a top university and, and getting a degree, an MBA, and going into something along those lines. And that's your path to greatness. If I follow your path, even if I do well from a letter grade average, I cannot reach my greatness because that's not the path to where I need to go. And what public school has done, I censor myself, what government school has done is place every child on the same path, a little less narrow, it's a little bit wider, there's a little bit of give and take in there, but in the end, it's all the same thing. Everyone should go to college, and you all need this many math skills, and this many English skills, and this many that, and this many the other. When, well, what if my path to greatness is I have the potential to be an amazing artist and not just an artist, but an artist with wood building cabinetry. And some of the top cabinet makers in the country make more money than most people that have MBAs or even MDs. But I can never follow my pathway to that in the current government school model. We are all brilliant That's something. And we all have the potential to find that brilliance. What, What homeschooling does for us is it gives us the ability to find our own path so that we can actually head in the direction where our greatest potential lies. And government schools, if they could do that, would be able to make a good case for it. But they can't. They cannot do it. And I don't believe that they're capable of doing it because of the institutionalized model. And I believe that the system is now more concerned with self-preservation than its mission. Once again, something has fallen to Pornell's iron law bureaucracy. If you want to know what that is, look it up because I've spent enough on it today. I now have a question for Stephen Harris on keeping produce cold, including meat, when going to farmers markets.
6: Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question. I got a really good one here from Zach. Steve, do you have any lower cost suggestions for keeping produce cool, ideally below 40 degrees Fahrenheit, but not really quite required, or my meat that I sell frozen while transporting vegetables, berries, eggs, frozen meats, and everything else to the farmer's market? Also, keep keeping them cool or frozen while I'm at the farmer's market. Details. We are market gardeners in central Indiana. Way to go. We raise one and a half acres of vegetables and berries, a thousand chickens, 20 hogs per year. And I'm currently using a 2,000... seven Chevy 2500 extended cargo van, and several coolers to transport my refrigerated or frozen items to the farmer's market. For the cool items, I just use ice blankets or ice packs, and for the frozen items, I use dry ice and a nice cooler. If needed, the farmer's market can supply us with electricity. I'd say yes, get it. Or I have a $150 Harbor Freight small portable generator. We are hauling 1,500 pounds of gear and coolers to the market each trip. Roughly half the weight in space is coolers. When fully loaded, I have approximately 33% free space in back of the van. That's good. That's some nice space. July and August are the main concern as it can regularly be 95 plus. I've looked at refrigerated box trucks, and they seem to be beyond my price range right now, over $50,000 brand new. And I've considered pulling a trailer with a half-ton pickup, but I don't know a lot about refrigerated trailers. Any improvements you can make on our system, or should I just stick with the current coolers until I can afford a refrigerated truck? Thank you, Zach. Zach, I think we can help you out without you ever having to spend $50,000 for a refrigerated truck once you get bigger. So before we talk about freezing blue cold packs and or using ice and dry ice, The first thing you want to do the day or two before going to the farmer's market is you want to put everything in your big freezer at home, have it cranked up on high. You want it to be minus 5 to minus 10 in the freezer and let the meat and the water in the meat be its own source of staying cold. So freeze everything rock solid before you put it into the coolers and go. For your coolers you take with you, go to Home Depot and get some one-inch foam. It'll be pink, blue, or white. Use liquid nails to attach the foam to your existing coolers. Then paint the foam in the cooler with exterior white latex paint. The cheap $10 a gallon white exterior latex paint at Home Depot will work fine. This will protect the styrofoam from light deterioration, and plus it makes the foam more durable. And get, Plus, now you're also super insulated. Now, add blue cold packs to the coolers or just put in soda bottles that are frozen solid in the extra void space you might have in a cooler. It would not be easy. To put a small freezer in your van and power it from an, an inverter as you drive down the road. You're in a van. It's actually easier in a van than a pickup because you got the doghouse in the center of the van, covering up half the engine. So you could run some big cables from the battery and the, and the alternator connection inside of the um, inside the van inside the doghouse and then you could run like a 400 or 800-watt inverter while you're driving down the road and keep a refrigerator in the back of your van, uh, not a refrigerator, but a freezer in the back cold. You know, this is an option, but it's not the easiest. If you can get 120 volts at the farm market, as you stated, and it was open for something like eight hours, then you could bring like a half-size freezer in your van, and plug it in when you get to the farm market. And I'd still put one or two inches of foam on the freezer sides, except for the hot side. Don't insulate like that. Now, for expanding your business, get a trailer, like a 7 by 12 foot trailer, uh, and put three inches of spray foam in it. You're going to have to find someone who spray foams houses, and you take the trailer to the foam guy, and you have him spray in uh, two to three inches of foam on the floor, on the roof, on the sides, on the front, on the door. You want foam everywhere. Now, make note, um, you do not want to get a V-shaped front on the trailer you want a flat front on the trailer because what I want you to do is put in a 12,000 AC unit into the front of the trailer and this will run off 120 volts and you are going to get something called a cool bot c-o-o-l-b-o-t jack loves them uh, you can go to storeitcold, S-T-O-R-E-I-T-C-O-L-D dot com to get more information on it. They're like 250 bucks and it's a bargain. It will turn that air conditioner into a professional, uh, walk-in cooler for you. And it will get it down to about 36 degrees Fahrenheit and hold it there as long as you're not going in and out of it too much. Now, on the front part of the trailer, underneath the AC unit where the V is coming together, I want you to put a generator there, like a 2,000-watt generator, like a Honda EU-2000i or a Ryobi 2,000-watt inverter generator. And I want you to run the A.C. off it while you are driving down the road, especially if you got a farmer's market an hour or two away or something. First uh, thing you do is you plug in the trailer at home 24 hours before you go. You cool down the whole trailer. Then you're going to move in your coolers into there, and then you're going to hook up the trailer to the truck and start the generator and run it as you are driving down the road. Uh, I, you can do, I mean, these trailers are like 5,000 bucks and less. You can get them on Craigslist. Or you can find them brand new. And this is going to be a lot cheaper than getting an, a freezer truck for $50,000. You can also get a larger trailer, like an 8x20 foot or a 7x16, uh, if you're really growing that much. Your 2500 Chevy van should not have any trouble pulling a trailer like this. Note, you better plug, oh I said that, plug in the AC into the, before you leave home. Um, cool everything down before you leave home from day before. And then, anyways, uh, that's what I have for my notes for you. Uh, I think this will work great for you. Jack will probably say something good about the cool CoolBot. Uh, I know it's on the TSP page with uh, a TSPAS link to Amazon for you to find it. Uh, if you have any questions on this, Zach, if I haven't explained something clearer or as you grow, you have further questions, please feel free to reach out to me by email. Just go to Stephen1234.com, drop me an email, you know, ask me your questions in it. I'll help you grow. I'll help you do it e- e- economically and on a budget that's affordable and get your mission done. Uh, and everything nice and safe for the customers. If I have to, I'll give you a call or whatever. It doesn't matter. I'll get you taken care of. Anyone out there in TSP, you got a question, go to steven1234.com. Look in the upper right. You'll find my email. Send me a question or send it to Jack for the expert panel, and we'll get you taken care of and squared away. I promise. Thanks so much, guys. Talk to you later.
2: You know what you hear at the end of that call? Stephen Harrison, who he truly is. Despite that sometimes he can be kind of, well, rough around the edges, just like me, um, he's a servant to this community. He, he truly is, and uh, should be appreciated for it. And whenever you get a chance, tell him thank you for all he's done to help people in this community. Um, the thing I would say on this with the trailer is, I've actually knocked around like that kind of a, 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 an option for my own bot. As many of you know, I have a cool bot. They sent it to me. I told them when they sent it, like, yeah, I'll do a build for you, but it won't be anytime soon because this is spring. I got a workshop coming up. I got an aquaponic system I'm putting. In. I got an aquatic system. I got baby ducks I'm brewed I mean, geez, right now I'm I'm like a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest right now. And you know what happened today, guys? Or actually, last night about four o'clock, um, the uh, cable people uh, were outside working, and they determined there was a problem on the system, and they determined. That I was the cause of the problem, and the cause of the problem wasn't anything I was doing. Is there the the service line that goes from the pole to my house? There's a, it's an old cable. It's probably as old as the house. It's probably you know thirty five, forty years old. Somewhere there's probably a, a a short. So it was creating ingress back onto the system, and so they disconnected me, and they went home. So like I, I the, the cable's been going out left and right with these idiots. So. I didn't do nothing for like three hours. About 7 o'clock, I call him, and they're like, yeah, you're the only one. I'm like, oh, shit. Guy comes out today, and I'll, I'll circle back to, to uh, how this ties into the show in just a second. And uh, we have a nice talk. I say, yeah, I actually built most of this plant 20 years ago, I guess it is, uh, during the rebuild of all this cable plant here. So I kind of know what's going on, and we're just kind of chatting, and he says, yeah, you're right, you have no signal here. They, it looks like either something's been cut or disconnected. So he goes and figures out what happened, and he comes back and he tells me what they did. And I'm like, that can't possibly be acceptable to to Charter Spectrum. He said, no, that's that's not acceptable to us at all, but it happens. So I start talking to him. I said, what did you do before you did this? He was a school teacher in a Dallas school district. Kind of goes back to one call ago, doesn't it? And I asked him, I said, what made you decide you wanted to drive around in a giant van and uh, worry about people's dogs biting you and climb poles and... And do this instead of a nice cushy you know job like a teacher has, and get your three months off a year and all. Said so, you know if I had not been in Dallas and Fort Worth school districts, maybe it would have been different. Maybe it would have been different. But the his exact words: the system is broken, and there's nothing I could do to fix it. So now he's installing and, and servicing cable. So you know what he didn't say? The pay sucked. I didn't get paid enough. He said, the system's broken, and there's nothing I or anybody else at the teaching level can do to fix it. Wisdom from the cable guy. All right, what that brings me to is a question for me. Oh, I you know what I was saying. On the, on the build, I'm thinking about looking for like a box trailer that's in good shape, maybe one that has some problems because I don't plan on going up and down the road with it and doing exactly what Steven said because as I look at building one in either one of my buildings, it's like I'm going to take a space in my building. And I have to put a hole in my beautiful building. And I don't really want to put a hole in my beautiful metal building. So I, I, I'm i – and it's going to be a little wonky with the steel frame building and the, the – yeah, yeah, like that kind of thing. So I was thinking just that. And hearing Steve talk about it has me really thinking to keep my eye out for the right box trailer, you know, something that maybe needs some work on the bearings and shit and the hell with it once it's here – it up on blocks and, uh, and do that. It, and I got a place that it would fit perfectly where it would be shaded almost all the time. Uh, and it was right next to power. And I, I, I do love the Coolbot. I'll have a link in the show notes today for you to check out the Coolbot and a link to the recent interview we did, uh, with, uh, uh VP of Marketing from, uh, Coolbot as well. Here's the, uh, Here's the question. It's kind of an interesting one. So what do you think would happen if someone managed to be elected president and then broadly use the power of pardon to try to minimize government influence in our lives? Well, listening to you recently describe the process of dissolving a town, the gears got turning in my head, and I wondered and wondered what would happen if someone who was secretly liberty-minded managed to wind up in the Oval Office and then just routinely offered a pardon to any and all people charged with tax evasion at federal, state, and local level. It doesn't strike me as an intrinsically impeachable offense. It makes me wonder how much you could starve the beast in a second year of weekly assurances that everyone would be pardoned for tax evasion in a four-year presidential term. What do you think? Thanks for all you do. Kevin from the Wiregrass region of Alabama, formerly Kevin from North Georgia, um So here's the deal on that. It actually would be a very impeachable offense for the president of the United States. I, I want you to notice something about presidential pardons. They usually come all at once, and they come right at the end of a president's administration because the president does have the power of pardon. And when it's used that way, it's seldom challenged, and... It's impossible to impeach the president in the amount of time left in the president's time in office. And it seems largely pointless to the public that you would do so over a pardon, which we know the president has the power to do, uh, at such a time as the new president's coming in to take over. And of course, Congress is trying to get out for Christmas break and all the other shit. And the new Congress is coming in and, you know, a bunch of the ass clowns have lost their jobs and are being replaced anyway. And it's just, it's strategic. It's not that if, um, for instance, let's say that President Obama, there was a Marine, I believe it was, that sent an email. This was definitely used to make a case against why Hillary Clinton should be in in an orange jumpsuit. He had sent an email to his command in Afghanistan and simply said there were some people around the front gate that looked like they didn't need to be there and that possibly security needed to be beefed up. However, he used his Gmail account. It was considered a breach of security, and he was court-martialed over it. Not just reprimanded, straight to a courts-martial. And uh, let's say President Obama had looked at that and said, "Ye know, and pardon that guy. Because uh, even in the case of military justice, the president can issue a pardon. I don't think anybody would have screamed to impeach Obama for that. Okay? Let's think about it a different way. Republican-controlled Congress, and instead of waiting till the end and looking at a case like Edward Snowden, which Obama didn't do, but if he had looked at Edward Snowden and said, you know what, he did try to use the right channels, he was afraid for his own safety and the safety of his girlfriend, he was threatened by his higher-ups, all this is true, by the way, and uh, actually he did serve the American people by taking great risks to himself And I don't think this man should spend time in prison for the rest of his life for what he did. And I'm going to pardon him. If Obama had done that in like January, a few weeks before Trump took the oath of office, no risk of impeachment whatsoever. Don't care who's in power. However, however, had he done that two years before the end of his his presidency, there are many in the Republican Congress that would have said, Hey, hold on. This guy is a threat to national security. You using it, it's not that you don't have the authority to pardon him, but that was a misuse of that authority. And it places the nation at risk. And therefore, it would fall under the definition of a high crime and misdemeanor because our nation is at greater risk because of what you've done. Right? And whether they would have got it done or not, I don't know. But you certainly could have made a case for it. The approach of the president saying no one has to pay taxes, and I'm going to preemptively pardon everybody. Well, you know, gotta tell you, that's that would be a massive case for impeachment because the the president is charged with executing the laws. That's why it's the executive branch of government, and this gets into an so it's just not doable. And I want to say something here, and I don't want the the person that wrote in. Um, uh, Kevin, to take this like I'm picking on you, I'm not. Something we're all guilty of. It's a fantasy that someone else can give us liberty, and we come up with these scenarios in our head that, well, what if this, and what if that, and what if the other, and it's to make us feel better. It's 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 intellectual masturbation, and the reality is it ain't gonna happen. We're gonna ha- freedom is never granted; it is only seized. That that's the truth. And the if, well, what if this and what if that and what if the other? It goes back to my shop teacher, Mr. Fox, who one day when I was talking, you know, he was a three oh eight guy and I'm a 306 guy, and I'm like, what if that, what if this? And he pulls me aside so no one else hears and he goes, Spirit let me tell you, if your aunt had balls, she'd be your uncle. Stuck with me to this day. Probably the, the most profound thing I learned in school, you know, K through twelve, was that perception of the world the what-if scenario. If, 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 if the if, the if is, is, is not legitimate, then it's irrelevant. Okay? And you need to deal with the reality on the ground. So the reality on the ground is we are not free and we must seize every ounce of liberty we can for ourselves in our daily lives. And only through doing that can we hope to have anything approaching liberty in our lives. But it does bring up something I've wanted to talk about recently, and it gives me a way to talk about it that I think is interesting. And that is, what can and can the, what can the president and can't the president do, um, and what can and can't be justified under things like states' rights? So right now there's a federal law that says thou shalt not partake of thy sacred herb known as marijuana. It hath no medical relevance or use whatsoever. It is the nastiest type of drug on the planet. It literally is. It is classified as worse than methamphetamine, which proves your government can't get anything right. Um, and if thou does partake or sell, you're in violation of federal law. In most instances, the federal government doesn't concern itself with that because states... Uh, prosecute marijuana violations at various levels for various things. However, when one is actually you know, running something like a grow house or a, a grow factory of marijuana, uh, the federal government often would get involved in the past uh, because there's the potential for that marijuana to leave the state even if it they can't prove it's leaving the state. would be one way to justify that. So then states like California and Colorado come around and various other states legalize marijuana in various forms. In every single one of those states today, every single one of them, every person that uses marijuana is in violation of federal law. The state law does not supersede the federal law. We'll get to why I think in some ways it does in a second. But in, 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 in textbook fashion, it does not supersede federal law. So there are a lot of people out there that are liberty-oriented, even if they don't smoke marijuana, that thinks Colorado's marijuana laws is Colorado's business, and it's a state's rights issue, and the federal government should STF you, right, <laughs> shut the F up uh, about it and, and, and not interfere, which they largely have done under the Obama administration, and the Obama administration pretty much gave direction to the, 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 uh, the ATF, leave these people alone, don't interfere. Don't go do this. There were a few raids at dispensaries in California and things like that, but overall, pretty good record. I was concerned when Trump named Jeff Sessions that, uh, as Attorney General that that would change, but I think it was probably done with uh, Jeff. You know your comments about no good people use marijuana? Yeah, I know good people that use marijuana. STFU and go do other things. I think that's how Jeff Sessions got his appointment Attorney General because he's not made a blip about that. Uh, since day one, and I don't think we'll hear it either. I don't think Trump wants to go down that road. I think it's political suicide. But there are people on the right that are losing their shit over this, and, and, and we're screaming that Obama should enforce the laws on the books. These same people now, in many instances, though, that are saying no, they should not. The, the very, uh, the, the, I would say the libertarian right that thinks pot's okay says no. Well, no, it's states' rights. What, what Don't you understand about that? But some of those same people are now clamoring for the federal government to enforce illegal immigration law when states have said they don't want to. So the sanctuary city, sanctuary state thing. And you might think there's a quandary there. There's a difference. I, I don't think there is. Because remember I said federal law is not superseded by state law on the drug issue? I think constitutionally it is. Because... It happens in the state. It doesn't leave the state. It's grown in the state. It's in the state. It doesn't go over the state's borders. Until such time as it does, it's not the federal government's business. If you are an illegal immigrant, you've crossed a border. So it is the federal government's business. But I'm not saying whether they should or shouldn't, but I'm saying one could make the case that immigration, illegal immigration conflict with federal law constitutionally, constitutionally, whether you like it or not, pragmatism, right? Constitutionally, the federal government has supremacy. That's one of the federal government's actual constitutional duties, to defend our borders, which includes keeping people out that haven't come through proper channels. And federal government has supremacy there. Telling Colorado whether or not they can grow, smoke, chop up, put into a cupcake a plant is not one of the enumerated powers of the Constitution to the federal government. Therefore, it has no business there in the first place. But what if a president said, I will preemptively pardon anybody convicted of drug use, or even the other idea about taxes? Here's the problem with that. You can't actually pardon someone until they've been charged. Okay? And if you are going to pardon someone who has yet been not not yet been charged, you have to name them and name specifically what they're pardoned from. And it could read anything up they've done ever in their life up till this day. Doesn't include what happens tomorrow. So a president that does that and all these people stop paying their taxes or start you know smoking dope in front of the police station that have pending charges and aren't specifically named. Because what the president would be saying is, each week I'll get a list of everybody and I'll just pardon them and they're gone. Can't do it as a blanket class of a thing. Where a president can make the most effect toward liberty, though, is the direction of the bureaucracies of government. And I have to give Trump credit. In some ways, he's doing well with that. And what I mean by that is the president directs the FDA through executive actions this is how you are to enforce the law this is where and how and how things are appropriated for it this is where see and all law enforcement is discretionary if it wasn't every single person that broke the law would be caught and punished to the letter of the law well why 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 did you get pulled over speeding ticket and the guy that was right behind you not get pulled over cuz you got pulled over first and there was one cop why did you speed through that that place fifty seven times last year but got pulled over once maybe when you weren't speeding as fast as you've ever speeded through there before why why that one time because the cop was there when you were there why isn't the cop always there because he has other shit to do so any law enforcement organization has to say we're going to spend x percent of our time and resources on this sector of issues and why on that and You know, G on this and Z on that because you don't have the ability to effectively do everything. So the president gets a lot of discretion with federal agencies as to how that is done, where it's done, the allocation of it. And if a president were to say, you know what, with this illegal immigration thing, what we should be doing is if you've committed a felony, your ass needs to be deported now. And you guys need to direct 90% of your resources to the deportation of people that are convicted or charged with felonies or anybody with a previous deportation. Well, if he does that, then all of these hardworking immigrants that we leave the word illegal off of, um, that we're so worried about, the DREAMers and whatnot, they need not fear deportation because they don't have time to deport them. That's exactly what Donald Trump's doing. And in that way, it's a win for liberty because I think he'll give them a path to to normalization. And I think the American people will accept it because of his extreme position. That's how a president can affect liberty. But how do you affect liberty in your own life? You don't come up with fantasies about a president doing it for you. If you want to pay less taxes, you design a lifestyle and a business structure that specifically reduces your tax footprint. And you have to look at it that way. Otherwise, we spend our time Fantasizing that somebody will fix it. Well, this, just like the teacher I told you about today, even the president can't fix the whole system. Because the system is the problem. And when people tell me they're afraid because Donald Trump is president, I'm like, then you should be afraid of the power of the presidency, not Donald Trump. Because what you're saying is, it's okay when your guy's in charge, but it's not okay when the other people's guy's in charge. That's a problem with the power structure itself. It's not a power a problem with the person. It really isn't. Anyway, with that knocked out, I want to remind you that you can help support this show by doing your Amazon shopping at tspaz.com. I usually have an item of the day for you uh, because of everything that went on today. I do not have an item of the day, but that doesn't matter. You're probably going to buy something on Amazon over this weekend when you're ready to do that. Just go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. One less letter than Amazon. It's easier. Click the link, go to Amazon, buy your stuff, get your stuff, help the survival podcast. Cost to you is zero because you're going to buy your stuff anyway. If you want to check out our items of the day, there's a link to do that. I try to put really good stuff up, and I'll tell you what, the feedback I've gotten on the items that I've put up has been phenomenal. I haven't had anybody... Actually, I, you know, I think about it, this this is kind of weird. Since starting item of the day, which I believe I started in June last year, so six, seven, eight months, uh, doing most weeks five items of the day, I haven't had a single person email me and say I bought this and I'm disappointed with it. Not one. If you are, tell me because I want to know if there's a problem with an item I've recommended or a company that I've recommended. But uh, I haven't had any. And I think that's a testament to how much research I do when I recommend this audience spend their money on something. I would say, with the exception of maybe two things that were recommended by audience members that I didn't need, uh every single thing that I've recommended, I own. If I wouldn't spend my money on it, I don't ask you to spend yours. Anyway, always you can support the show. com. brings us to our song of the day. Song of the day today is uh from the year of the episode, which is um 19... 19- 62 and it's by the beach boys. Certainly the first song like this that we've ever uh had. And Alex shrug told us the beach movie craze is coming into fad uh, a couple, uh a couple uh, uh, history segments ago. And it is, but the other thing that's coming along with the beach obsession is the muscle car obsession. And this is called four Oh nine is in the four Oh nine Chevy big block. Uh, it's also the beach boys debut album four Oh nine. And, uh, it's probably one of those songs, I haven't heard that. You'll hear it go, oh, yeah, I've heard that one point or another. And uh, it definitely sounds like 1962. And I don't know what the, the muscle car obsession is like today. I don't, you know, occasionally I see a 69 Camaro that's beautiful, and I think back to being a high school kid, dreaming of having one one day. Um, but I don't see a lot of them. But I can tell you, in the Royal Coal region of Pennsylvania, in the mid-'80s, like 85, 25 years later, the muscle car obsession had gone nowhere. Um, I grew up with friends who much more looked back and wanted a, you know, a '69 a Corvette or a '71 a, a Mach Mach 1 Mustang or a, an Olds Cutlass or um, a, a, a Chevy Malibu, you know, from like '72 or something like that. Then they 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 dreamed of owning a new car. That's what everybody wanted. So that muscle car obsession was not a fad because fads don't last that long. Unfortunately, I can think of another musical thing that I thought was a fad. In the 80s when rap music really began to take a foothold, I thought this will go away. Even as a young kid, I'm like, this sucks. This this has to be a fad that's still with us today. Sometimes things are fads and you're glad they're fads. And sometimes things seem like fads and they're not and you wish they were. But this was a great song and it does typify the time 1962 With that this has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live She's that better life times get tough rebuild it up.
3: Well I
0: save my pennies and I saved my dimes.
3: Giddy up, giddy up, 409. 409. 409. 409. 409. 409. 409. giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up,
4: When I take her to the track, she really shines Giddy up, giddy up, 409 She always turns in the fastest time
1: Giddy up, giddy up, 409 My four speed dual quad positive drags 409 409, Giddy up,
3: giddy up, giddy up
0: catcher, nothing can touch my
2: 409